Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you, and there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey friends, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter nine. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can use the version, or it's also called the Bible app, and we've already uploaded all the notes and the scriptures. Of course, we'll also put the scriptures on your screen as well. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you. I'm so grateful that you're part of our family. And so I mentioned last week that when Paul went to Athens, he had no intention of preaching Jesus. He was frustrated, he was without helpers, and frankly, he needed rest. And when he left, although he'd seen a few Athenians receive Jesus, he also had no intention of preaching Jesus in his next stop, Corinth, either. He was still frustrated. He still needed rest. He was still lonely, was even more discouraged, and was probably questioning his effectiveness to fulfill the calling without a partner in ministry. In fact, he'd later write to the Corinthians how he was feeling when he first came to their city. He said, I came to you in weakness, timid, and trembling in fear. Frankly, Paul was struggling. I want to talk to you about that today in a message that we're calling The Struggle is Real. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're grateful to you. God, you are great. And so because of that, our praise should be great. And so we give you that. We give you the greatest praise that we can, the greatest honor that we can. Pray that as your Holy Spirit dwells within us, it'll flow from us. That God, every ear and every heart that has the opportunity to hear your word and your heart from our mouths would be changed. God, in the process, if you could change us, that'd be pretty cool too. So God, change us from the inside out, make us less like us, more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's Paul, the most effective, impactful preacher the world has ever seen outside of Jesus. And yet, He's in the fight of his life. By all accounts, he's questioning his call. He's wondering if he can do what God has called him to do. He's wondering if he has what it takes. And I wonder if you ever wonder if you have what it takes. What it takes to be a good spouse or a good parent, a good boss or a good employee, to get out of debt or save for retirement, to be a good neighbor or a Jesus person. I think that's why some of you have struggled with the idea of doing a pocket church. You don't feel like you're good enough to lead yourself, never mind bringing others into your home so that you can do church. And honestly, you're not good enough. And neither am I. But the good news is, we don't have to be good enough because he is. And honestly, you're not alone in your doubts. Paul, the apostle, the saint, the author of half the New Testament felt the same feelings of insignificance and insecurity, especially 
coming into Corinth. It was the biggest, most urban, ethnically diverse city he'd ever visited to that point with over a quarter of a million people. And he comes into this massive city, cut off from his friends Silas and Timothy, and out of money. For most of his ministry travels, he'd been financially supported by Barnabas, who accumulated wealth as a landowner in Cyprus. Now, without Barnabas around to fund his ministry, he ran out of money pretty quickly, and he had to go back to work. I mean, if you haven't connected with Paul to this point, think of it like this. His economic stimulus had run out and he was having to scramble to make ends meet. He's trying to focus on what God's called him to do while being forced to go back to work with financial uncertainty clouding his mind. So doubt probably entered into his mind again about having parted ways with Barnabas. He probably thought, you know, Barnabas really was a good friend. He really was a good brother. I mean, he endorsed me when none of the Jews accepted me. He supported me in so many ways. I mean, why was I so stubborn? Why was I such a hothead? Why can't I just get out of my own way? Can you relate to that? Are there things that felt right at the time, but now they haunt you with regret? Like it felt good to tell your boss off at the time. It felt good to go home from the bar with that guy at the time. You felt okay to drive home at that time. I mean, you'd only had a few drinks. And so you're living your life in this regret of things that felt good at the time. It was in this mindset, already discouraged and doubtful, already feeling defeated, that Paul headed to Corinth. And he would have anticipated difficulty. He, he would have known he'd face opposition. Corinth had a reputation for its immorality. It, it wasn't a place you would have expected to meet a follower of Jesus. But to Paul's pleasant surprise, that's exactly what happened. Shortly after his arrival, he met followers of Jesus who told him that they'd met visiting merchants from Thessalonica who had openly, unashamedly shared the message of Jesus with them. And can I encourage you? These Thessalonian believers were no more qualified than you feel like you are. I mean, they'd only known Jesus for a few weeks and, and yet they're used by God to encourage the most prominent person God was using in the world at that time. And I wonder, who might God want to use you to encourage? I, I mean, they may have been the very reason Paul didn't give up. They were living proof that what he was doing was actually working. God really was using him. And it was through these brand new Christians that Paul heard about a couple who owned a leather business. And, and so he sought them out. He, he hoped to find work. He'd, he'd have been well versed in working with leather from his days of making tents with his father in his hometown of Tarsus. And so he met Priscilla and Aquila who'd recently relocated from Rome. And they were also followers of Jesus. And they embraced Paul. They gave him work. They let him live upstairs from their shop and they would become some of his best friends for the rest of his life. He stayed with them in Corinth for 18 months and he taught at the local synagogue on the Sabbath and then he taught in their home other days of the week to be able to reach people who wouldn't go to an organized religious service, sound like pocket churches. And the message that he was supposed to deliver was clear to him. He expanded on the message that he shared in Thessalonica, a message of love. 
but not the version of love they'd been hearing. Paul unpacked a new word for love the followers of Jesus had come up with by gleaning from his life and from his teachings. Agape, a pure love for others that wasn't perverted by your limitations or your longings or your lusts. And this type of love was critical for them to understand because Corinth was overrun with all sorts of distorted forms of love. The city had developed the theory that love is love, that love is blind, that it has no borders, it has no boundaries, that you can love whoever you wanna love. The city was dominated by a different type of love, eros, which was all about your longings, all about your lusts, a purely sexual love. It's where we get our English word erotic. And Corinth was filled with eroticism. Sex was one of the main attractions. It drew visitors from all over the empire. In fact, the sexual immorality was so rampant and so well known that all over the ancient world, people who lived in perversion were referred to as living like Corinthians. The people living in the city, they were literally surrounded by, sandwiched by sex. On a bluff on one side of the city stood the temple of Aphrodite, dedicated to the goddess of love and the protector deity of the city. It was the home of the cult of Aphrodite, which was dedicated to the glorification of sex. The more sexual encounters you had, the closer to the goddess you got with the ultimate allure of a sexual encounter with the goddess herself. And the temple, it housed a thousand temple prostitutes, the most beautiful of women who men paid exorbitant prices to engage in sexual encounters with as an act of worship. And so on one side of town, you had the temple of Aphrodite, a temple dedicated to heterosexual sexual sin. And on the other side, you had the temple of Apollo, a temple dedicated to homosexual sin. Apollo was the idealistic image of manliness. So the temple was filled with these nude statues of Apollo in various poses of virility. And those statues, they fired his male worshipers to physical displays of devotion to Apollo by having sex with the male temple attendants who were called Apollo's beautiful boys as a sign of their manliness. So the inhabitants of Corinth, they had the heterosexual temple to one side and the homosexual temple on the other. And they were both counterfeits. And they both created confusion. And that confusion still lingers today. I had a conversation with another pastor this week and he asked me if two men or two women are committed to each other in a loving, faithful relationship, how is that wrong? But that's where the confusion comes in. This was never about commitment to each other. It's always been about commitment to God. And this is important enough to God and God loves us enough that he would have the chronological progression of the scriptures we've been studying fall so in line with what's happening in our culture that on the week George Floyd was murdered, the scriptures talked about a time when Paul was beaten and wrongfully imprisoned because of his race. And then this week on Pride Weekend, we just happen to be in a scripture that talks about sexual confusion? I don't think so. I didn't maneuver these scriptures. I can't make this stuff up. God loves us so much that he would warn us about a counterfeit love. 
one that's driven and defined by our longings and our lusts, whether that be a heterosexual or a homosexual counterfeit. Because God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of clarity. And I know that some of you aren't even gonna hear me talk about heterosexual sin. You're only gonna hear me talk about homosexual sin. And, and that's gonna be whether you're on the heterosexual side or the homosexual side. But I can't avoid it because there's no confusion there. And I don't say that because I'm straight. I think heterosexuals without Jesus are just as confused sexually as those in the homosexual community. Otherwise, they wouldn't watch pornography or masturbate. They wouldn't try to bed as many people as possible or cheat on their spouse. It's confusion. But the confusion in the homosexual aspect isn't just in the delivery of love. It's in the definition of love. It's an eros love that says love is love or love is blind, that, that it has no borders or boundaries or, or that you can love whoever you want to love. But this past week, I had an interesting conversation with my rabbi friend, Matt, from Seattle, and we talked about how this was addressed from the very beginning. You can hear it at length in our podcast, A Pastor and a Rabbi Walk into a Cultural Crisis. But let me just give you a little summary of it. In the beginning, God made man in his own image. And quickly he saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so he formed woman. And we say that he formed woman from man's rib. But the original understanding was God formed woman from man's side. He took one side or one part of his image, man, and he took another side or another part of his, his image, woman. And when he said that two shall become one, he was saying that two sides or two parts will join together to recreate the image of God. And it's not that he's saying you can't love whoever you want because he hates you. It's that you can't take two of the same side or two of the same part and create a whole image. And I know how some of you are gonna respond. Some of you are gonna respond with, but Sean, some people are born that way. And you know what? I can't authoritatively answer that challenge. I'm neither a geneticist nor God. But what I do know is that we're all born with something. Because scripture says we were born in sin and shapen in iniquity. And I get it. Whether you're a liar or a thief, a fornicator, or you have gender confusion, the struggle is real. And if I'm totally honest, how people are born isn't an issue for me but how they die is. Because scripture also says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And I know whatever your specific struggle is, like Paul, you feel like you're in the fight of your life. You're wondering if you have what it takes. You're not alone in your doubts, but you're also not alone in your struggle. Because guess what? It doesn't end there. The next verse, says that Jesus was offered once and for all as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Many people? I thought it was all people. Watch this. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. And in being offered as a sacrifice, he was showing us the type of love that Paul shared with the Corinthians, a love that was gleaned from his life and his teachings. 
agape, a pure love that isn't perverted by or prevented by your limitations or your longings or your lusts. It's a love that Paul would later write is patient and kind, that doesn't envy or boast, that isn't rude, self-seeking, or easily angered, that keeps no record of wrongs, doesn't take pleasure in evil, but rejoices in the truth, that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And most importantly, it's a love that never fails. It's that love that is available to you if you just lay down your struggles and pick up his salvation. Will you do that today? Because not only is the struggle real, the Savior is real too. Would you close your eyes? Before we get into the salvation thing, I think there's people that are in here and they're dealing with struggles. Whether those struggles be sexual struggles, whether those struggles be financial struggles, I know that we ended talking about sexual struggles, but they're not the only struggles that we struggle with. People that are struggling with insecurity, people that are struggling with strife, people that are struggling with anger, and those struggles have become sins. And so if that's you today, whether it's anger or deception or whether it's a sexual sin or a deviancy, I'd be remiss if I didn't pray for you. And so Father, today for my friends on the other side of this screen, whatever is their struggle, God, I pray that they would surrender that, that they would lay that thing down. They would submit that thing to you, the Savior King. And so God, today purify our hearts, purify our minds so that you can purify our eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen. But maybe you're watching this and you say, Sean, yes, I have struggles and the struggles are, are limitless. They're endless. There's so many of them. Maybe your struggles are less specific and more overarching. The beauty of what we call salvation is that it covers, Scripture says, a multitude of sins. It covers all things. That nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus. And so I wonder if you're watching this and you say, Sean, the struggles that I have, they've been dogging me. They've been pursuing me. They've been dragging me down. And today's a day you feel like you, you need to change. Here's the beauty of it. He's been waiting for you all of this time. He may have written this message just so you could see it. So if you're watching this and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's what salvation is. It's admitting that you're a sinner, asking Jesus to change that, and inviting him into your life. So if you wanna do that, I'm gonna say a few words in a prayer, and if you repeat those words and you mean them in your heart, the Bible says that you will be saved. And so if you wanna receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, will you say this after me? Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Would you change me? Would you come into my life? Make me different, make me new, be my Lord, be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, you just began the greatest journey of your life, a journey away from where you are to where God wants you to be, and we wanna walk that with you. So if you do us one favor, and if you would click the button on your screen 
that says that you're raising your hand to follow Jesus, we would love the opportunity to connect with you, love the opportunity to follow up with you and to help you in this beautiful new journey that you're on. Also, before you go, would you look at those discussion questions that we've put out, talk about them with your friends, talk about them with your family. If you're already doing one of our pocket churches, talk about them with your pocket. They're great and they're gonna help you get closer to Jesus. I love you, I'm so grateful for you. Will you worship with us? Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.